Anonymous Was a Woman was recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Jamila and Astrid and the team pay their respects to elders past, present and emerging. We note that this land was stolen and never ceded. Hello and welcome to your second episode of Anonymous Was a Woman for this week. My name is Jamila Risby and I'm joined as always by my co-host Astrid Edwards. We are delighted to be jumping back into your podcast feeds and confusing you a little bit if you were an avid listener to our first season. We have decided this season to split our episodes in two. We, of course, spend a bit of time each week with a wonderful author, And we wanted to spend a bit more time with them. It's not fun when you are editing out beautiful content from someone that we want to share with the audience because of time. So what we're doing is we're just giving you more Anonymous Was a Woman all the time. And we are kicking off today in spectacular fashion for our second part of the episode on solitude. I am delighted to introduce Tara June Winch, who is a Wiradjuri author who was born in Australia and is now based in France. She and her family have been locked down in France since March. So they've got a lot to teach us about solitude. Tara was, of course, named the Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Australian Novelist and has won numerous literary awards for Swallow the Air. That was... Oh, feels like a million years ago. It was back in 2006. And since then, Tara has done an enormous amount of incredible writing, culminating in, of course, The Yield, which won a whole bunch of prizes this year, including the Literary Award, the Miles Franklin. And just a warning that the audio quality of our discussion with Tara June Winch isn't quite as good as we would have liked, as she is in regional France, and didn't have the best internet connection. But hey, it's Tara June Winch. It's worth it. Tara, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. We need to begin by saying an enormous congratulations on your Miles Franklin Literary Award victory for The Yield. And I want to ask, what was it like receiving that award on the other side of the world and in semi-isolation. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the podcast. In terms of receiving the award in isolation, it kind of worked well for me because I'm pretty antisocial, particularly this year, regardless of the pandemic. It's been a year I wanted to be sort of alone and removed from the world a bit. So that worked. But then on the other hand, you do miss your colleagues and you miss actually the camaraderie that comes with that, with being face-to-face and being at festivals and the conversations that I think, I mean, you can still have these conversations online. There have been so many, you know, replacement panels and conversations with writers' festivals that are moving online. But there's something that at the writers' festival, once the writers are done with the panel, often we'll walk out and still be discussing the topic, you know, and go to a cafe or a bar and it might last like an entire afternoon or evening discussing the topic that we've talked about. So that kind of um, extended conversation that happens at festivals, that's what I mean. Yeah, I have to say I also really miss that camaraderie of 
writers festivals. And I wanted to ask Tara, in your acceptance speech for the Miles Franklin, you talked about Tony Birch's shortlisted novel, The White Girl, and wanting to share that accolade. And this episode's about solitude, and yet you wanted to do something that was very much the idea of doing something together rather than having a single winner, having this idea where we recognize multiple wonderful books. What did you love about The White Girl? It feels very disconcerting to have this sort of like receive abundance when it's such a year of hardship for so many people, not just writers, but everyone in the arts particularly. So with Tony, yeah, it just, it didn't feel, it felt like the world was askew a bit. It didn't feel right that I'd won instead of Tony, honestly. Uh, it seems like being humble brag or something, but it wasn't like that. It just didn't feel correct because I learnt so much from Tony and it was Tony that really, Tony and Melissa that really spurred me on to finish this book in the first place. So, I mean, Tony's book is beautiful and he has, he is a master storyteller, you know, and I did sit in on the class with him in 2014 to finish The Yield and learnt so much. It was like I couldn't believe how much I learned. I took so many notes and I was just... I had my mouth agape the whole time. His novel, The White Girl, is so tender and controlled and his use of language is powerful because he knows when to pull back. And I think his book fits with my book and with a couple of others, like Clergy Coleman's and also Melissa's lately. I had 15 minutes to write that speech, by the way, so... It was very instinctual. You didn't get a lot of time to think about it. That's not very fair at all. (laughs) Well, I have to say I found what you said really beautiful. There was a sense of camaraderie between authors and, you know, great writing shouldn't be a competition. It should be a place where we lift one another up and particularly for First Nations authors who for so long haven't been recognised the way they deserve to be. It's great to see both you and Tony and Melissa getting the recognition that you deserve. Yeah, look, it was historical. It had to be pointed out how historical it was to sort of, it's historical in the way that should make people uncomfortable as well because it's the first time two Indigenous authors had been on the shortlist since 1957. That should make readers and the audience feel uncomfortable and I'm and it's going to change it won't be like that I said that and I'm hopeful for the future I'm sure there'll be two or three black fellas on the shortlist in the future. Tara this might make the audience feel uncomfortable as well you and I occasionally chat over Instagram of all places and before the Miles Franklin I remember wishing you luck and you wrote back and you said oh I won't win this year because Melissa meaning Melissa Lukashenko for too much lip one in 2019 and they won't have two black women win. And I remember being shocked when you wrote that to me and I think I said something bland in response. But you honestly felt that and now you've blown out of the water and you did win, deservedly so. But the fact that you could have thought that you wouldn't win because there's some imaginary quota or very real tokenism that has existed in the literary community and throughout Australia and every industry before breaks my heart. I just thought it as a given. And I think people in the industry had sort of said it to me as well, like, oh, it'll be a man this year, like that they could see some sort of algorithm that needed to happen. So I think I was just getting fed that information. Oh, you know, the shortlist contained giants of 
Australian literature and the long list. So like any mentally sane person would say, oh, I'm not going to win. But it's particularly with Melissa, you know, I was there during the announcement last year and her books are so similar and I just you don't expect that to happen another year in a row. Not only did you and Melissa, two First Nations writers, win the Miles Franklin two years in a row, but your win is actually the fourth year in a row a woman has won. Josephine Wilson won in 2018. And then Michelle de Cretza. And then Michelle de Cretza, yeah. And the Stella Prize had to be founded seven or eight years ago because the Miles Franklin was only being won by men. And just watching this change, and you are at the pinnacle and the you know the front end, the vanguard of that change, Tara. It's one of the beautiful things that have happened in 2020. Yeah, it's happening in the UK and in the US as well. Don't you think? I mean, most of our readers are female, and I think we've just. I think it has been sort of a change over the last decade where well, maybe we've responded to the energy of that audience that that, need, that needs our stories as much as we need them, perhaps. I don't know. I mean, w- women are kind of at the front of the great books that are coming out across, across the world, really. So, yeah, we don't need the Stella anymore. Close it up. <laughs> it's nice to hear that women are no longer lonely at the top and being recognised as such. Tara, I wanted to ask a little bit about you and how you're doing. I know a lot of authors welcome a little bit of solitude, clearly not the circumstances that have led to our current solitude, but the solitude itself can be where the best work gets done. What's your practice like for your writing? How do you best write? Well, I've got a puppy. (laughs) Let's just put that out there. Tara, I am delighted by that because one of the best things about doing all of these interviews on Zoom is we get to see people's puppies. I think that's the best bit. It's so joyful. So I think the dog for the family unit has kept us buoyant and afloat emotionally during this time because really we've been in lockdown since March 3rd. And my teenager hasn't gone to school since then, only six days in six months and won't go to school in September, I'm sure. Wow. So for us, it's become we're like living on top of each other really a lot. We needed someone to sort of give us some breathing space and joy. And so that was the dog, which has been great. But in terms of keeping my solitude, because I think especially as females with families, to find solitude is is our greatest burden, you know, is to actually carve out, not, not just carve out time and be disciplined, but to be selfish rather than disciplined, to say, to sort of take ourselves seriously, even when other people won't take us seriously, even when we're these different roles of incidentally in society of wife and mother and school committee person, all those things. Well, there's other roles that demand of us. So about finding solitude has been about saying to myself, you're a legitimate writer, go up to the office and close the door and just ignore them for a while, they'll be fine. You're right. That emotional labour is so often carried by women and I think women's work is often seen as the most dispensable, if that makes sense, that when we go into a difficult period like this one where we've got kids at home and someone needs to be with them at least 
a decent chunk of the time, we often think, well, a woman's job is the one that we're going to forego. Often because a woman's income is the income worth foregoing because it's usually less. Yeah, yeah. It's the, it's just it works that way. It just you end up you end up taking on more than you can carry as a woman, I think, as well as a mother. So that has been yeah. I need to be a bit more selfish, but at the same time, it's been like I said, good to have that to be close with my child to spend all this time flesh to flesh, you know, in this constant sort of maddening, angry, hilarious, desperate, confused conversation about what's happening in the rest of the world and then having that dog, having those animals, because we've got other animals too, having those animals around us as well just to keep us grounded. But in terms of the solitude and what it's, and keeping engaged in the creative life and keeping my mind um, reflective and and having a sense of community is about and I think I've done this with writing in the past is having a sort of creative companion like a creative best buddy to bounce ideas off and to to sort of walk through a book together so at the moment I've been writing in that solitude, sort of solitude or cave, because I am writing with Beirut's Buchani. So we've been writing together. We're writing oh, wow. essay together. Yeah, and he's in New Zealand and I'm in France. We could literally not be further from each other because we're also writing this essay together. And we're both trying, like, struggling to write our fiction at the same time. And we're so, we've got so much to talk about Australia. It's so fascinating because neither of us are in the country, yet we think about it and reflect on it every day. Not just it's, you know, history of violence and the justice system and refugees and all that. It's been so essential to have a friend in solitude and and like an artist and a mind to reflect on this process with. Yeah, I think that's important for writers because I think pure solitude... I wonder how you guys feel about it. Um, Jamila, oh, what am I talking about? You did so much in lockdown. How many books did you write? Uh, children's books, I feel like they don't count when they're 700 words. <laughs> it's just that little bit easier. It's the strangest thing with children's books because you, I don't know, people talk about the author, but they don't talk about the illustrator very often. And the illustrator's just brought so much of that story to being. So I feel very, very weird about that. But I... I'm, I'm interested in that companionship in solitude and also your reflections on women because in The Yield you have extremely strong female characters and a very much a strong kind of matriarchal family at the at the center of the center of the work. Was that a reflection on your own life and your own realities or was that a concocted reality for you? Yeah, I think at the beginning of the book, the reader doesn't realise how much the women, because there's these two male voices that are coming in to tell the total narrative. So I think it's for the reader that not really aware of how much the women have carried this story and that will carry the characters in the end. So I wanted to, to, to reveal that in a sense, and that was sort of done purposefully because... All communities all over the world, our women carry our families. So, yeah, it just I think it just spoke to reality, to be honest. It would seem really like retro and like a false, a falsehood if I didn't include that. 
Does that make sense? It does make sense, Tara. I was interested in, you know, working with Beirut's Bashani as that companion in solitude, but you're both, as you said, outside Australia. Does that distance from Australia change what you write? And by that, I mean the whole world is different and changing and a bit of a disaster at the moment, but you have uh, distance from the specifics of what what is happening in Australia now, as well as mm. all of the other themes that you always address in your work, including our bloody history of colonisation. Does mm. COVID and, you know, everything else unfolding kind of change what you write because the world is changing? I don't mean the history of Australia is changing, but just the current events are so different. Does that mean you, you know, set your work in a different time? Would it be possible to write a work set pre-COVID? I don't know. How do you as a creator deal with a world changing around you? I think what's interesting is when it does feel like we're both peering over sort of a fence, looking down at a scene from being in Europe, me being in Europe and Beirut being in New Zealand. And I think that distance allows us to have like a wider perspective and see our overlapping stories in terms of the nonfiction that we're writing together the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers and the treatment of Indigenous people historically and contemporarily. And plus his Indigenous person as well, you know, he's Indigenous Kurdish. So our perspectives are really fascinating in that way in terms of looking at um, colonial violence and, and looking to the future of what could be Australia. But for the fiction, we already have our own projects that, sort of exist in a realm where COVID isn't even a subject. I will never, I think, put the word COVID in a novel in my lifetime. <laughs> I I would be delighted if that is the case. I will escape into your novels and avoid the real world if this craziness continues. Tara, we've taken an enormous amount of your morning up. So I wanted to finish off with a question about something I know you've been doing in lockdown is that you've been working on the Share the Mic campaign on social media, which I got to play a very teeny tiny part in. And as part of that, you had these amazing First Nations women take over the social media accounts of other Australian women with big followings and use that microphone, I suppose, to speak loudly about whatever the hell they wanted to for 24 hours. One of the things I noticed, and this is how I'm bringing it back to the writing, one of the things I noticed in the way those events were reported afterwards in the media outside of those Instagram accounts was that the press focused on the women who weren't using their account as opposed to what was said by the First Nations women who took over those accounts and I, I wonder what you thought of that in terms of the way we tell stories and the parts of the story we choose to focus on with our writing mm -hmm. yeah I noticed that too I mean we all did we had meetings about it what is that the, is it the sort of the paternal colonizing voice that must lead uh, or speak on behalf of us or is it celebrity and is it that vacuum that celebrity lives in within the Australian media, you know, side by side within the Australian media? I think it was a bit of both, to be honest. 
you know, the reason that I knew that it would work in Australia is because I've, that's something I viewed about Australian society, mainstream Australian society, is they really, you know, they prostrate at that altar of celebrity. I knew it would work because of the power of mm. um, a, a celebrity in Australia. And that's why now with 33 Creative that have taken over, they're an Aboriginal-owned and run media company. So they've taken it over to rebuild it as having more control over who they allow to platform our community voice, community projects and voices. So I think it was the right thing to get people's attention and then to continue the conversation. There's sort of, sort of it's sort of bled out into different offshoots like teachers share the mic came from this and lots of other platform sharing. Hopefully it'll be we'll control the narrative now a lot more in terms of having that huge 33 creative that huge energy of an entire company like um, pushing this forward. I think that is incredibly exciting to have more of the tremendous women who've been involved in that campaign who I've started following every single one of them on social media because they've got exciting and interesting things to say and yet for whatever reason to my own shame I hadn't come across their voices before. So it's really exciting, I think, that you've been part of magnifying the narratives of a whole range of interesting voices on the Australian landscape. Tara, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your work and congratulations again. Thanks for having me, guys. We hope you enjoyed our interview with the phenomenal Tara June Winch. Astrid and I certainly did. And we have also loved being back with you for our first couple of episodes for season two. Solitude, I think, is quite a nice way to think about what would otherwise be the loneliness of this coronavirus lockdown. Solitude allows us to see some of the positives in the sadness that is all around us right now. So we hope we have lifted your spirits, maybe just a tiny bit this week, particularly if you are in Melbourne or Greater Victoria and very much spending a lot of time alone in your house to keep yourself and others safe. If you are enjoying Anonymous Was a Woman, then please make sure you find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a moment and can rate or review the podcast, we would absolutely love that because it will help more people to find us and we'll get more people reading books by, about and for women. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you next week.